Hear the word of the Lord from Second John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Amen, Harry. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak tonight. As last week we established a standard for truth, might we better understand what love is and how it comes out of that truth, that, that truth that we find in you and none alone. So let us dig into that tonight and might it affect our, heart, might it affect our hearts and our souls tonight. Amen. Well, thank you all so much again for coming tonight. Some of you were here last week and heard me speak and decided to come back, so that means I didn't utter too many blasphemies, which is an encouragement to me and makes me happy. Just to reiterate, I'm Harry Gimple. I'm studying philosophy down at Oklahoma State University. I'll be a junior this fall down on campus, but before I head back to school tonight, I've been participating in a pastoral internship here at Oak Ridge. And as Grant said, or Seth said, I, right, there you go, tit for tat there. I was uh, tasked with giving two sermons on the book of Second John, first being last week and second being, being this week. Hope that's not too much of a bother. Okay. Anyway, so last week we spent our time uh, digging into the question of what is truth. And we came to the answer that, that God is truth. Christ and his word can be our only foundation for truth. Without understanding and having our worldviews and our concepts and our beliefs and our ideas come from the word of God and from Christ, we have no hope to make any sense of ourselves or the world around us. And so tonight, coming out of that, that foundation of truth, which we laid last week, we're going to focus in on the question of love. What is love? 
So we're going to try to answer this question so that we can have a better understanding of what John is getting at when he writes in verse 1, whom I love in truth. So that we as a church can, can better live out loving each other in truth. Tonight I'm joined by my beautiful fiancé, fiancé of just four days now, as she said le- yes, just last Wednesday. Um, I met Sophia down on, camp- down on campus last fall. And as I got to get to know her, I wanted more and more for her to be my girlfriend. But as I wanted her to be my girlfriend, I was haunted by this question of, what is love? Because I didn't have an answer. And I had this idea that, well, marriage is, love is a part of marriage, or at least I think it's supposed to be from what I've seen in movies and told from my family and parents. And well, if I want to date this girl with the idea of finding a spouse and getting married, well, I should have you know, an idea of what this love thing is so that I know what I'm getting myself into. Because our world is fascinated with love. Our culture is enamored with love. It's praised, it's coveted, it's glorified, it's paraded through the streets. You know, Romeo killed himself because he couldn't stand the thought of living without his love. And in turn, Juliet did the same. But I couldn't give a definition. If someone asked me what was love, I didn't know. And if someone asked you what is love, would you have an answer? And yet love is so essential to our understanding of everything. It's essential to understand how we should treat our neighbors, how we relate to our spouse and to our children, and how we interact with God. Because we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. But what does that look like? And what does that mean? Shouldn't we understand what love is? Well, let's start off with the short answer. Let's look at our text tonight and see what John says love is. I'm going to read verse 4 through 6. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children... Oh, 4 through 6. Sorry, not 4 through 6. 5 through 8, I believe. Anyway, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Okay. So, loving one another is a commandment, and love is following the commandments. And that is the commandment, that we should follow the commandments to walk according to God's commandments so that we should walk in love. Well, that doesn't make for a very nice or clean bumper sticker, but John writes in his previous letter, 1 John, that God is love. And while that makes a pretty good bumper sticker, I've heard people defend homosexuality by quoting that verse, that God is love. And homosexuality is explicitly condemned throughout scripture, so... Let's spend some time to unpack what John, John means here when he's describing what love is. So anyway, after a few dates, times going out with Sophia, I decided to make it official, as it's called. I asked Sophia if she'd be my girlfriend, and by the grace of God, she said yes. And I wasn't panicking on the outside, or at least I don't think I was. But on the inside, I'm thinking, I really like this girl, and I don't want to mess it up. I really want to figure out what this whole love thing is so that we can have a foundation on which to build our relationship. 
I want to do this right so that I don't screw it up. So I've got to figure out what love is. And so that same night, we started dating. We made it official. I sat down at my desk, and I hammered out the most dorky piece of work that anyone has ever seen. It was about 10 pages, and I titled it A Philosophical Treatise on Love and Sophia. I used the five Greek words I knew at the time, and I'm pretty sure I spelled them wrong, because my two months of Greek grammar was a bit lacking at the time. So I planned to write out my elaborate thoughts in nice slanted cursive on nice thick pieces of paper. Instead, I had such a burning desire to get this thing to her as soon as possible that I gave her my rough draft on crinkled loose leaf in handwriting so sloppy there's words she couldn't read. And the whole paper was covered out or covered in crossed out sentences and arrows leaving, leading the notes in the margins. But at the day after we started dating, I was able to present to Sophia a definition of love on which we could grow together. And I'll share some of those thoughts and wrestlings with you tonight as we try to unpack what John's definition of love is and what the Bible's definition of love is more broadly. So to have a correct view of love, we first need to have a correct view of God. So to understand that, God is, God is the creator, meaning that God isn't a thing like other things. He creates things. To illustrate this, down at school, our philosophy department last spring hosted a debate on the existence of God, whether God exists or not. And the atheist professor arguing against the existence of God used as one of his arguments and one of his points that the fact that we as Christians can't point at God, we can't, and none of us have ever seen him walk down the street before. And because none of us have ever seen God walking down the street before, we can't prove his existence. But more largely, his point was that we as Christians believe in something that we have no evidence or proof ready at hand that God exists. Now we can't say, of course I believe in God, he's right there. Well, maybe at the second coming we can say that, but you know, that'd be, well, look, he's right there and you should run. It'll <laughs> be more of the conversation and good luck to you at that. But Dr. D, as this professor's name was, uh, he was correct in saying that, that God doesn't exist tangibly or physically like other things do. We can't point at God and say, well, of course I believe, him in, believe in him, there he is. But it's, he can use that as a proof, but I don't think it's a proof of God's inexistence. I think it's a proof that God is of a different nature than created things. God is infinite. All else is finite. God is without bounds or borders, and we exist in space and time. I'm relegated to this body of flesh, and you're relegated to yours. And to demonstrate this boundlessness of God... Try to define God. Try to give God a definition. There's a lot you could say about him, and there's a lot you could say he is, and a lot you could say he's not. But no matter how, long, no matter how long-winded your explanation is, you'll never arrive at a complete definition of God because you can't define the indefinite. And that's why we can't point to a creed or a short work or a book or a paragraph and say, well, look at this. If you want to know everything about God, we, we as a church have nicely put it in this sentence, in this paragraph. You want to know who God is? There it is. Right there. Read that and you'll understand God. No, we can't do that because we're limited in our understanding and God is infinite. Even if we understand perfectly everything he has revealed to us, there's things he hasn't revealed to us. So, defining God proves to be problematic. 
Now we know that John writes in 1 John 4.8 that God is love. And we argue that, that love shares in that undefinable nature with God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now these are attributes and characteristics of love in the same way we could describe God as sovereign, all-knowing, slow to anger, just, good, and so on and so on. But love is, def- love is beyond a dictionary definition because at its essence it's related to an infinite God. God is love. So love is undefinable. We set out with the task of giving a definition of love. It seems we've gone backwards here. But to point out the problem of this or the, the trickiness of the undefinable nature of love, we can see it readily in our culture. Our culture struggles to deal with the fact that love is love and it's beyond definition. And it's why it's most popular definition of love is the logically empty statement that love is love. Unbelievers, since they don't believe in a God, they're left with what they see around them and what they feel, and they don't have the word of God to guide their hearts and minds, so they're hopeless when it comes to love. And this becomes clear when we look at the logical implications of the definition that love is love. A person who chants love is love most likely supports same-sex relations, Now, they might not be aware, but that same person is also supporting incestuous, pedophilic relationships. That same person, by their own logic and definition, who is supporting two men getting married, is also supporting a grown man sleeping with his young niece. And that sounds terrible, and that should make you feel uncomfortable. Because it is an uncomfortable thought. But if someone holds to the belief that love is love, they have no logical argument to say that incest or pedophilia is wrong. Because the pedophile could simply say, well, this is who I love. And so by the definition of love, a person who chants love is love is actually supporting pedophilia and incest. This goes back to our definition of truth of last week, is, is our definition of love has to be founded in Christ and his scripture or else we'll fall victim to the arrogance of worldly logic. Okay, so love is beyond definition, and our society fails when it tries to give a definition to that which only scriptures can shed light on. So So what light does scripture shed on us? Well, Jesus had a lot to say about love. I can't sum it all up here, but in John chapter 15, verse 13, he says that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. And what was the greatest act of love ever committed? It was Jesus laying down his life on the cross as a payment for our sins. The moment of greatest pain, of greatest suffering, of greatest sacrifice, that was the greatest act of love the world has ever known. So when Jesus died in our place as a sacrificial lamb to appease the just wrath of God on our behalf, that was the greatest act of love that has ever taken place or will ever take place. Okay, So we see this relationship between love and sacrifice. And Paul uses similar language when he he tells husbands how to treat their wives. He charges husbands in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. So we have this relationship between love and it being acted out through service and sacrifice. Love can't be summed up in a dictionary, but it can be realized. It can be acted out through service and sacrifice. How much does God love us? He sent down his only son to the cross to be beaten and spit on so that we as worthless sinners could be called sons and daughters. So that we might be inheritors of the kingdom of heaven, he watched the blood spill from an innocent man so that we might be called righteous. That's how much God loves us. Love is made true through acts of service and sacrifice. Love is why Christians choose to burn at the stake rather than reject the name of Christ. Love is why believers leave their homes and families to go to unreached parts of the world so that more people might be able to hear the good news of salvation. Love is why God-fearing people invite their co-workers over to dinner to be witnesses for Christ because they would rather inconvenience themselves than sit idly by as they watch their co-workers day by day march closer to an eternity separated from the love of God. Love is why I proposed to Sophia because calling her my girlfriend just didn't sum it up. No, I wanted to lay my life down for her. I wanted to give myself up for her as Christ did the church because I love her. That's what love is. Love is a commitment and it's an emotion and it's a passion and it's a desire and it's a longing and it's endlessly more. And it's, but it's not some sorry excuse to have sexual relations with whoever you want, whenever you want. No, the Bible's notion of love is so much richer than that. And it's a shame that the church is villainized for not submitting to this terrible notion that love is love. Love is without bounds, but it's exercised through service and sacrifice as Jesus demonstrated. Think of how James talks, talks about faith and works. Without works, your faith is worthless and you never had faith to begin with. Oh, you have faith? Prove it. Show me by your works. Show me your faith by your works. Without selfless sacrifice and care for others, your love is worthless and you never had in the first place. Okay, but biblical love isn't one size fits all. Love realized through service and sacrifice looks different for different relations. How a wife loves a husband is different from how a husband shows love for his wife as they have different roles. It's loving for a father to discipline his child but it's not loving for a child to discipline his parents. Ten years from now, it might be loving for me to buy a new car for Sophia, but if I bought that same car for her the week after we met, it might be a little weird. Now, how do we best love God? We follow his commandments. We follow his commandments. And his commandments also tell us how to treat others. In verse 6 of tonight's text, it reads... And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. God's commandments tell us what our service and sacrifice should look like. Paul gives a great definition of this in Romans 12, or explanation of this, when he commands us how that love should look like. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To show our love for God, we are called to give our whole lives to Him and nothing less. What does love mean to the church? It means to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we as Christians, if we abide by this, if we say God's standard for love is in following His commandments, it only makes sense because we understand our relationship 
as creature to creator. And so we say, God, we know what your, your commands are best. We know what your definition for love is best. And that's how I realize it, through showing, to obeying his commandments. Not through following our own ideas or our own versions of love, but by following his version of love. Because we know that he's creator and he is divine. And so, okay, we're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves, but what if you just don't love your neighbor? Commanded to treat our neighbor as ourselves, but what if you just don't want to invite your neighbor over for dinner because you don't really like them? Or you don't want to invite your coworker over for dinner because they're a little weird? Or you don't have those, those longings and those desires and those passions to reach out to those in your community that have needs? Well, it's a commandment. We're commanded to love. And it's interesting that modern psychology promotes this idea that your emotions follow your actions. So if you don't have those longings and desires to reach out to those in need around you, to, sh to love your neighbor as yourselves, well, start loving your neighbor as yourself. Start inviting your neighbor over for dinner. And those desires and that compassion for those who are, those around you will grow. Those, that love for other, sorry, God's other creatures will grow as you serve and love them. So we know that truth can only come from God. And a correct concept of love can only come from His Word. The world digs its own graves as they try to intellectually best the creator of the universe. So we can't point at God and say, look, there he is. And in the same way, we can't point at love and say, look, I found it. We can only realize it through service and sacrifice. John writes in verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. So as a goal, as I set out for these, these two sermons, was to have a better understanding of how do we love each other in truth. We know that our truth has to be founded in the truth that is in God and in Christ and His Word alone. And now we know what love is. It's the love that, is, that at its essence comes out of that truth of God's Word alone. The truth that John is loving is a truth that is found in Christ. And the love in which he loves is a love acted out through service and sacrifice as he cares and labors for the church of Christ. Now we as a church need to live out this letter of John as we try to love each other in truth. All right, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your, your wisdom and your truth revealed through your word that we can have a standard to hold to when the world around us is flinging accusations and flinging definitions. We know that we have a standard of truth and a standard of love to cling to through all of it. A standard that stops looking inwardly to ourselves and to our feelings and to our emotions and start looking outwardly, self-sacrificially to others and to Christ and to God. Now please be with us as, as we try to live this out in our lives as a representative for you and your body. Amen.